Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ to redeem us, to make us your own. And we thank you for filling us now with the presence of your Holy Spirit. And Spirit, we come and ask that you would be our teacher, that you would be our interpreter, you would be our guide as we open the word that you inspired. Lord, we're so grateful that you have not left us to ourselves in this life to sort out who you are and who we are and what you've called us to, but you've given us this very clear word. And so, God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we open it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Read with me, if you would, Luke chapter 7, and I'll begin reading in verse 18 through verse 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour... He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace And calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is God's word. 
Much of the trouble in our lives, I think, is rooted in unmet expectations. You expected to get, in, get a certain grade, and then report cards came out, and you hadn't. You expected to get a promotion, and you didn't. You expected a relationship to turn out a certain way, and it, it hasn't. Maybe you expected to get married by a certain age, or to be able to have children by a certain time, and you haven't. You expected your career to end a certain way. It hasn't. You expect your investments to yield a certain return, and they don't. I could go on and on and make us more sad and more sad. People and circumstances sometimes leave us disappointed and discouraged because of unmet expectations. Now, this happens for different reasons. Sometimes it happens because people simply fail to do what they said they would do. Our expectations were appropriate. Our understanding of the situation was accurate. Things just did not happen the way they should have or at least could have. But often, our disappointments come because our expectations were misguided. We were internally demanding things from people or anticipating circumstances that were either unrealistic or unpromised or at times even inappropriate. Other times, disappointments come because our perception of the situation is off. We're not reading the circumstances accurately. Uh, the person we thought was letting us down uh, is actually keeping their word. We just didn't realize it because we came to rash conclusions and made some wrong assumptions. Uh, if you've ever had a relationship with any other human being, you know this sort of thing happens all the time in relationships. The same thing can happen in your relationship with God. You expect him to make you feel a certain way, but you don't feel that way. You expect him to alleviate certain pressures, but they're still there. You expect Jesus to be a certain kind of savior, but at times you feel like the way he's relating to you is just different than what you expected. And you might even start to ask, how could God let this hard thing happen to me? And like other areas of life, this is often because our expectations of God are misguided or our perception of our circumstances is unclear. And in that situation, which Christians we all find ourselves in from time to time, of course, we know if we stop and think about it, that it's not God who needs to change, right? Uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in fact, that's why we find him to be so trustworthy, is that we don't have to worry about if he's going to relate with us according to one standard one day and then relate with us differently the next. We can trust that God will always relate with his people in ways that are accordant with his character for our good, even as we sang, when we don't see it. What needs to change, of course, 
is either our expectations of God or our understanding of our situation. And isn't it true, friends, that very often we need a little bit of both? Well, in our portion of Luke 7 this morning, Jesus is not meeting people's expectations. So they come to him with questions. So the title of today's message is Questioning Jesus. Questioning Jesus. Let me say it's good to come to Jesus with questions. We'll see that. But how Jesus responds to those questions is determined by the motive of the one asking. And we'll see that as well. So let's take a closer look at Luke 7. All of this chapter is presenting Jesus to us from the vantage point of people who ask him questions. So if you still got your Bible open, I hope you do, take a look down at it in verse 3. It says the centurion sent people to Jesus, what, asking him to come and heal his servant. We saw this last week as Jose preached to us. The the question there is, Jesus, will you help? And of course, we saw last week that Jesus most certainly can and does help. The second question here is, are you the Messiah? A Messiah is just another word for Savior. And that question is in our text in verse 19. Look at it there. It says, are you the one who is to come? So the Old Testament prophets foretold that God would send them a Savior to deliver them from their oppression. And so the question to Jesus here is, Jesus, are you the guy? Like, are you the promised Savior that we've been waiting for, that we've been expecting. Now, the third question, just to tip our hats to next week, is, Jesus, can you forgive? If you glance back down at your Bible at the end of chapter, uh, of the chapter, verse 49 says, who is this who even forgives sin? So three questions. Will you help? Are you the one? And can you forgive? Now, I would dare to say that those three questions rank pretty close to the top of the list of the things people are still asking Jesus today. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus responds to each one of those questions. He shows people he can heal. He explains that he is the one and he forgives, uh, he extends forgiveness to a person that everyone else would think was uh, the least deserving of it. Now, before we get into our text, let me just um, step back again and say, I just find this fascinating about how Jesus is presented to us here. Because I think it it presents something of the breadth of his ministry. Jesus, in the first part of this chapter, appeals to our sight. Here, he will appeal to our, our minds. And in the next section, he'll appeal to to people's hearts, all to help them and help us see that Jesus is indeed the Savior. And so if you are, you know, the power encounter kind of guy, you know, I got to see it. I'm a little bit like Thomas, you know, show me uh, the the marks. I I need to see it. Well, Jesus shows people things. If you're a little bit of a thinker, Uh, You know, you need a good explanation. If you can get it, 
You can put it together, you'll be all right. Well, Jesus is going to explain some things today. Man, if you're just a sucker for a good story, it kind of stirs your heart. Uh, man, do we have a story for you? Jesus is going to pull your heartstrings next week. Now, of course, uh, all these aspects of, of Christ's ministry may especially resonate with, with certain ones of us differently. And to an extent, that's by design. But of course, we need all of Christ, don't we? We need all of Christ from all of Scripture for all of life. And so whatever your inclinations or preferences might be, I want to ask you to, to listen in with me as we zoom in on our passage today. The second question, are you the one? Jesus, are you the Savior we've been waiting for? Now, as I mentioned, this is a passage that in particular calls us to think. Now, this observation might be a little maddening to some of you, but in a chapter of Scripture framed by questions, this particular passage has even more questions. Uh, by my count, there are 23 sentences in my translation of this passage. Nine of them are questions. If you're an English major and you're into this kind of stuff, like if you look over the language, probably half of the language in this passage I read is in the interrogative mood. And so it's a passage that invites us to to consider. The disciples of John ask Jesus questions about himself in verses 19 and 20. Jesus asks the crowd questions in verses 24 to 26. And Jesus asks the crowd questions again about themselves in verse 31. So these questions dominate the, the tone of the text. And that alone tells us this is inviting us to reflect. It's inviting us to consider. Because when you consider the answer to a question, you learn. Right? Good teachers who are here today know that if they ask a question, they need to pause for a minute. It took me a long time to learn this. Early on, I would ask a question and then talk right on top of it. But when you ask a question and then stop, that silence is the sound of learning. People are sitting there thinking about the answer to your question if you and I will be quiet long enough to let them do that, right? Jesus is asking us questions because he wants us to think about who he is. Now, let's look at this passage under a couple of headings. First, an unexpected Savior. Uh, last week, we saw in the previous passage, Jesus do great miracles. Uh, he healed the servant of a leader in the Roman army without even seeing him. And then he raised a young man from the dead. Now, needless to say, this has got people talking. Word, word is getting around. And so Luke tells us in verse 17 that all of this news is spreading into a particular area now, the area of Judea. Now, Judea was a territory, uh, so to speak, of, uh, of John the Baptist. This is where this great prophet had ministered. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And earlier in this gospel, in a, in a portion we haven't covered in this particular series, 
Luke tells us as much about John's birth as he does about Jesus' birth. Because John wasn't just any other man. And he wasn't just any other prophet. John the Baptist was appointed by God from birth. You could even say from conception. To be the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. To be the one who told people the Messiah was coming and to prepare for his coming by repenting of their sin and turning in their hearts to God. And as John was doing this in Judea, one day Jesus came to him to be baptized himself. And so if there was ever an endorsement of someone's ministry, it's got to be Jesus coming to you and saying, will you baptize me? Now, when Jesus does this, of course, Jesus himself is not doing this because he has sin to repent of. He doesn't. Jesus comes to John for baptism to associate with his people. To say, these are the people I've come to save. And like them, I want to come and and receive this baptism of reflection, of a turning of the heart to God. And when Jesus shows up that day, John looks at him and tells the crowds, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John is nervous about this request, if you remember. He says, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. How in the world could I baptize you? Well, Jesus puts him at ease. He, uh, he insists. And when Jesus insists, it's pretty smart to just go along with the plan. And so John baptizes him. And at that moment, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit testify that Jesus is, in fact, God's Son, all at John's baptism of Jesus. So all that is background in Luke to say, while John is not the main character, he's a really important one. And we're going to get a little more about him today. Now, after Jesus is baptized, he goes on to launch his public ministry And during that time, John continues calling people to repent and turn to God. And he did so in a manner consistent with the prophets before him. And just to put it really straight, John was weird. He was just a weird guy. He lived in the desert instead of a normal home. He wore animal skins instead of normal clothes. He ate bugs and wild honey instead of normal food. And while all that was very weird compared to other people, it was like par for the course with other prophets. This is what prophets do. They were weird by design. They marked themselves out in various ways from kind of the mainstream of Israel in order to kind of speak back into Israel as something of an outsider. And that's exactly what God had called John to do. And John did that so boldly that he got uh, called out uh, by the king. He had called the king out for his adultery, for all sorts of other sins. And that landed him in jail. And so now as we come to this passage, John is sitting in jail And word gets to him about the things Jesus is doing. Now, if you look back at the text in verse 17, it says, This report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea 
As I mentioned, this had been where, where John had ministered, and so there was a high concentration of his followers in that area. And so verse 18 says, the disciples of John then reported all these things to him. So these guys are visiting John, and they're telling him the stuff that they're hearing about Jesus. And so John is sitting in prison, and he gets this report. And apparently he is starting to wonder what exactly is going on. What is God doing? What is Jesus' role? It doesn't seem that he's doubting God or even doubting Jesus necessarily. But he is looking for clarity and reassurance. And so John sends his disciples to Jesus with questions. And they ask him in verse 20, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Jesus responds to that question in two ways. Demonstration and proclamation. Or you could say demonstration and explanation. So look back, verse 21 says... In that hour, when the, the questions were put to Jesus, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. That's demonstration. Then in verse 22, Jesus answered them. He spoke. And he said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. That's the explanation. Now let's just step back and make a few observations about this little Q&A with Jesus and the disciples of John. First, even John the Baptist has questions. The person who had been ordained to declare Jesus is the Messiah from the womb on this occasion needs to go to Jesus for clarity and reassurance. Christian, that should also be very reassuring to you. It's okay if you have questions. It's okay if the followers of Jesus need to go to Jesus occasionally looking for clarity and reassurance. We'll come back to that. But second, when John has questions about Jesus, notice what he does. He asks Jesus. He doesn't Google, is Jesus the Messiah, right? He doesn't sit on his cot in the jail cell and ponder it to death, right? He asks Jesus his question. Friends, when you need clarity and reassurance about Jesus, the best person to ask is Jesus. Now, listen, you might be thinking, um, yeah, he's not exactly, you know, just across the countryside for me to send a messenger over to. What does that look like now? Fair question. Today, we take our questions to Jesus by asking them in prayer, by asking them as we read Scripture, and by asking his other followers. 
We, we pray our questions, we search the scriptures with our questions, and we talk to other disciples of Jesus who have likely wrestled with the same questions. Take your questions to Jesus. Now, let's look back at John's particular question. John's question has to do with messianic expectations. The question John asks isn't about whether Jesus is really doing the stuff that's been reported to him. He apparently does not question that Jesus can and has done things like raise a guy from the dead and heal a centurion servant from miles away. The question John asks is about whether the things Jesus is doing are things the Messiah does. In other words, he's saying, okay, Jesus, I'm hearing you are doing incredible works of healing. Does that mean you're the Messiah we have been expecting? Or does it mean that you have some maybe great role to play in all this but we should actually be anticipating another who's still to come. Now, we can't know exactly what John's motives are in asking all that. But it seems likely that he was expecting a more total kind of upheaval, a more full renewal of all things at the Messiah's coming, not just uh, some incredible, but maybe isolated healings and exorcisms in the countryside. He, he might be wondering, if you're the Messiah, why am I still in jail? So John isn't skeptical, but Jesus maybe hasn't quite yet met his messianic expectation. So he asks a question. Now let's look at how Jesus responds. Jesus does not rebuke John for his questions. Uh, he doesn't say, how could you? You're like the behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world guy. You were at my baptism. You have been my cousin, you know, uh, since, you know, your mom and my mom, we were leaping in the womb. Like, how could you be asking me this now? He doesn't rebuke John. He answers directly with demonstration and explanation. So after he serves the people in miraculous ways, he makes an explicit connection. And the connection he makes is between his works and God's word. His answer to John in verse 22 is a reference to Isaiah 61. The same passage, by the way, that Jesus preached in Nazareth in Luke 4, the very first week of our series. And he makes the connection between what he's now doing and the Old Testament prophecies of what the Messiah would do. Prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would do certain things when he came. And so Jesus is very simply doing those things and then pointing to the scripture and saying, See, John, I'm doing the things that were foretold of the Messiah. He points people to his works and God's words. There's actually much that could be said about what Jesus does here. One of those is that this is exactly what 
we have done when we have trusted in Christ is that we have heard from Jesus. Now, today, through his word and through his followers, what he's done and what he said. And in the same way that John finds faith and clarity and reassurance from hearing about what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said, in the same way disciples become disciples today when we hear what Jesus has done and we hear what Jesus has said. But also the same thing that Jesus tells the messengers from John to do is what he calls us to do. Verse 22, he says to these messengers, go and tell what you have seen and heard. Jesus sends his disciples on a mission to go and tell what we've seen and what we've heard. This is the the drumbeat in many ways of the Christian life. We look back and we see and we remember and we are reminded and retold what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And we hold on to it by faith afresh for ourselves and then we extend that to other people. We show people what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. That's how Jesus responded to the question that he was an unexpected kind of Savior. But now Jesus asks the questions, and he uses them to teach something about the kind of kingdom he is bringing about, and it's an unexpected kingdom. That's the second heading, if you're a note taker, an unexpected kingdom. Once the messengers from John have left with that explanation about Jesus, uh, they've gone on, and Jesus now spent some time with the crowds asking his own questions and answering his own questions about John. But what he's saying is about way more than John. But he asked them the same question three times, which means he must really mean it. And it's this, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And every time he asks it, he adds another question to it, and then he answers it. So first he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, did you just trek all the way out from the city out to the desert to see somebody who was totally inconsequential? No, of of course not. The, The assumed answer to that rhetorical question is no. If that were the case, they wouldn't have gone through all the trouble and he would not have been so clearly impactful. So then he asks him again, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Love this one. A man dressed in soft clothing? No, right? Jesus says, uh, no, guys who wear nice clothes don't hang out in the desert. They hang out in palaces. They're in the king's court. People who are kind of enrobed in luxury live in places of power. And again, the assumed answer is no, because if that were the case, he would have been in such a place, not in the desert. And so then he asks the question a third time, and this time he finally gives an explanation. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, in verse 27, he says, This John is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. 
I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus explains John just as he explained himself by quoting Scripture. And this time, the Scripture he quotes is Malachi 3.1. To affirm, yes, Jesus is a prophet, which is apparently the answer they assumed. But then to ratchet that up and to say, oh, he's more than just a prophet. He's the one specifically foretold. He's a very particular prophet. And then Jesus adds this extraordinary, effusive description of John in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Greatest guy who walked the earth from the lips of Jesus. There is no higher praise. Yet, he says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What's Jesus talking about here? John is the last prophet of an old age. And he is the greatest of that age because he is the one who immediately precedes and directly proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah and he's come. There there is no greater calling, there is no greater honor that could be given to a prophet of the old age. But the new covenant kingdom Jesus is ushering in is greater than the old. What had been foretold has now come. And all this effusive praise about John is actually Jesus emphasizing the greatness of what has now arrived. The greatest of the old pales in comparison to the new. And so he can say John the Baptist is the greatest person ever born. But nothing compared to the least person who is reborn. He is the greatest person born of the flesh, but nothing compared to the least person who's born of the Spirit. And that age of the Spirit has come. But this for them is a very unexpected kind of kingdom. And we see that in the response. Luke interrupts this whole Q&A session and he inserts some commentary about how the crowd is receiving all this. So just a little tip, as you're reading your Bible, when the narrator stops and says some stuff, it's important. So when Luke does that in verse 29, we should perk up. Let's read it. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, so he calls out a particular little subgroup, they declared God just having been baptized with John, with the baptism of John. Okay, John baptized us. This all seems like he's a good guy. We feel good here. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. This reaction affirms all the more that Christ's kingdom has not matched anybody's expectations. It's unexpected 
for them because it is not joined by family. It's not joined by force. It's not joined by effort. It's joined by faith. By faith in Jesus that he is indeed the one who is to come. And that dissonance between what they expected and what has come to be causes tax collectors and sinners to rejoice and causes Pharisees to reject. People who think they can justify themselves and maybe just need a boost from Jesus to improve their circumstances ultimately reject his message. But people who have no shot at justifying themselves are elated because Christ has come preaching forgiveness through repentance and faith, not through performance. The tax collectors are elated. The Pharisees are furious. Now, sensing this difference in response, Jesus closes with what one commentator calls the parable of the brats. I love that. He likens their generation to spoiled kids who are never satisfied. So he says in verse 32, they are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, a sad song, and you did not weep. And then he makes this comparison. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he's got a demon. The Son of Man, that is Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus is saying that people are preoccupied from the message because they're fussing about the messenger. Uh, John abstained, lived out in the desert. You said that guy's possessed. Jesus feasts and you call him a glutton. All of you are missing the point is basically what he's saying. But he ends on a note of hope. There are some who get it. And they aren't who anyone expected. It's not the religious leaders of the day. It's not the great teachers. It's not the great students of the law. But the sinners and tax collectors. So Jesus says wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, the wisdom of what both John and Jesus have proclaimed will be proven by what it brings about by its offspring, by its children. Friends, let me just back up and say, for those of us who are the followers of Jesus this morning, we are that wisdom. Not that you and I in and of ourselves are wise at all, but we are the fruit of the mystery of God that was proclaimed all the way back from Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 7. As that has been handed down halfway around the world and through the centuries for 2,000 years so that there are people gathered in 2023 on a Sunday morning in Gaithersburg because we believe Jesus is the one who is to come. Wisdom is justified by her children. 
It demonstrates what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. People as great as John the Baptist and people as blind as the Pharisees are wrestling with unmet expectations of Jesus. That's okay. But they respond to those unmet expectations in very different ways. And so the question for us will be the same. How will you and I deal with our unmet expectations of Jesus? Will you go to Jesus and ask him to adjust your expectations and improve your understanding or will you sit entrenched in your disappointment? If you have questions for Jesus, and I hope you do, what kind of response you get will be influenced by your own purpose in asking. If you despise Jesus and want to disprove him, I'm sure you'll find a way. The Pharisees asked those kinds of questions and felt entirely justified sending Jesus to the cross. If you come to Jesus in faith looking for understanding, I also expect you'll find that. Just like John the Baptist and just like the tax collectors. Friends, there is a world of difference between faith seeking understanding and unbelief seeking justification. There is a world of difference between faith seeking understanding and unbelief seeking justification. John's questions are an example of faith seeking understanding. The Pharisees' questions are an example of unbelief seeking justification. John wanted clarity and reassurance that Jesus is happy to provide. The Pharisees wanted to catch Jesus being wrong. Friends, Jesus welcomes your questions and mine as we wrestle with, at times, our unmet expectations of him. But if you're looking for a gotcha moment, do not expect to find illumination. If you're coming to Jesus in faith, asking to understand, you can absolutely expect Jesus to meet you where you are and teach you. Let me pray that for you. Father, we thank you that you welcome the questions of disciples wrestling with some unmet expectations. And God, we confess that all too often we are in that very place. And Father, I pray for those of us especially who find ourselves in that kind of place this morning, that you would help us to come to you with those questions, not the other places we tend to go. And that when we do, you would meet us there and bring us understanding, bring us clarity, bring us reassurance. And Father, where when we're honest with ourselves, we're coming to you because we're angry. And in the midst of that angry, we're looking to catch you off. We're looking to catch you being wrong. 
Father, humble us when we're in that place. And help us. God, we're so grateful that we don't have to stay there. We're so grateful for the examples of Pharisees who laid aside their pride and sought you and found Jesus. For those of us who are in that place this morning, Father, would you give us the humility to come, understanding that those questions are real, not assuming the answers. Father, ready to listen to whatever it is Jesus truly has to say. And Lord, as we do that, would you minister to people who are just wrestling with things not turning out quite the way they'd hoped? Comfort them, help them, guide them, reassure them. And Father, would you be with people who maybe aren't quite yet your followers, but they're still trying to sort all this out. God, would you guide them into your wisdom? God, that the message of the cross that was once great folly, just a ridiculous fairy tale to them, would become the most precious truth in all the universe. Open our eyes according to each one's need to see Jesus and to hear from him. In his name we pray. Amen.